0: Welcome to Can home of Canada's queer and medium. My name is Dick Smith. And no,
1: I am Sebastian.
0: And what a chock-a-block show we have for uh, folks today. Later up, we will be talking to the two directors behind the Uh, incredible documentary someone like me. I actually really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. We'll dive into that a little bit in a couple of minutes. But later on, we also managed to get an interview with Minister Chaga, the Minister for Diversity uh, and Youth. And uh, we talk about the federal funding for the LGBT communities, as well as the LGBTQ sector. So quite a lot on today's plate.
1: I liked her. She had a nice energy about her.
0: One of the things that we didn't get to when we talked with the directors is sort of your experience around helping folks to adapt, particularly with grocery stores. Yeah, so both
1: of us have been uh, immigrants to other countries, you to Canada and myself to Hong Kong and Japan. And it's this weird thing, probably the most useful thing you could do for someone who's new to the country. And I've actually done this for other people coming to Canada. Uh, because I've been through this myself, is take them around a grocery store and just show them what's what. I don't know, like even after having lived overseas and when I lived in Japan, I learned how to speak the language and read and write. And There were still things that when I left the country, I had no idea what they were. And once I took a friend around a grocery store here and he picked up something that looked like a potato, that something horrible had happened to it. And he's like, what is this, by the way? And it was like, oh, it's a celery root. It has a mild peppery aftertaste. It's lovely in a roast. And he was just like, "I've never heard of this before." But like a celery root, if you look at it, it looks like somebody put an accident out on the shelf.
0: But then there's it's a celery I think is the other name for it. Yeah, but it it, it is a disturbing looking product. But I love it in a stew. Oh yeah, it's it's beautiful in the stew. Jake, not a fan. But for me, I'm like yes, all the way. Things like that, you know why
1: why do you have so many kinds of hot sauce? or conversely, if they're from the Caribbean, why do you have so few kinds of hot sauce? So, you know, being able to walk them through that and be like, well, for some strange reason, half of it's actually kept in this other section. Let me show you where the rest of it's kept.
0: So, I mean, we bring this up because we were talking um, during the interview that's coming up in a few minutes about uh, supporting uh, refugees that come to the country and uh, as part of the, the Canadian refugee sponsor program. Um, yeah, and like I said, like you've said, you know, walking around and showing somebody a grocery store is a pretty big deal.
1: Or even just stuff like, you know, uh, two pairs of socks layered is warmer than one very warm sock. You know, like two summer weight gym socks will warm your feet better in the winter. And it's stuff that a lot of people don't think of. They, they, they think, you know, you're going to have to teach them how to use a flushing toilet. Well, I'm sorry to say that a lot of the world has a flushing toilet even if they live in a country that doesn't have a flushing toilet in every house, they'll have them at the bank, you know? Mm. So it's a lot of the stuff that you need to be shown is not necessarily what people might think.
0: Well, this is all vitally important information for uh, refugees and LGBTQ asylum seekers. Let us know what do you think people should know about if they come to Canada at talk can queer C A N Q U E E R is how you can find us on uh, Twitter and Facebook and of course you can find Can Queer on Spotify and where all other good podcasts are traded and sold it, sold it, sold you know what I mean, we'll mm. be jumping into the first song which is by Magdalene Baker, this is Magic Bathtub, I like this song <laughs> and uh, we'll be when we're back we'll be chatting with the directors on Someone Like welcome back to Can Home of Canada's Queer Major. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And I am excited. I I feel like I've been chatting with the National Film Board for the last two weeks. And they are excited about this film. And and I was thinking, well, I'll give it a check. And now I am also very much team someone like me on on this film. Uh, We are thrilled to be joined by the directors, Sean and Steve. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us.
2: Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Like, glad, glad you like the film. This is off to a good start. I'm
0: <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it, it is. I would say that it is required watching for anyone who's considering signing up to to help support uh, a ref, uh, an asylum seeker coming into Canada. Now, one of the things that your film notes, and one of the things that we've spoken to over many times on the show is that Canada is unique in being one of the only countries in the world where a group of 10 or 12 people can come together and directly sponsor uh, an asylum seeker coming in specifically around eligibility programming. It's actually something we saw, you know, further reinforced this year or this past month in the federal budget. It got a bit of a name check there. Um, and it's something that folks are, are keen. I think this actually comes from like the church. I think the church was doing this before the gay community was.
2: It definitely was. And Rainbow Refugee uh, is the organization in Vancouver who helps connect uh, queer asylum seekers around the world to sponsors in Canada. And they were uh, founded by Chris Morrissey uh, and Chris's partner. Uh, they were living in Chile uh, at the time during Pinochet's regime tried to come to Canada. Chris's partner was an American and was not able to come as a spouse to Canada at that time. So they have been spending the past 20 years changing the laws to make this happen in this country. So queer people can, you know, in an act of global solidarity, help other queer people escape violence and persecution and murder in over 70 countries around the world where it's illegal to be. Who you are queer yeah. or your gender identity so it's been a long process and you're seeing sort of just another step in that whole history with this film
0: before i dive into the film i want to note that you know canada is is really at the the, the razor's edge on on pushing this forward you know before we talked about the role that the Canadian government and uh, Rainbow Railroad, which is a Toronto-based organization, how they work to spirit spirit, uh, folks out of Chechnya who are fleeing the gay purge. You know, it's it's really fascinating to know that uh, not only is the government behind this, that there's incredible organizations, but most importantly, and I think what your documentary does more than anything else, is it zeroes in on those 12 that signed up to to support somebody. Now, for those who aren't listening, who maybe aren't familiar with this program, I'll quickly quickly break it down and you can catch if I've missed anything. Um, Essentially, if there's uh, 12 individuals can sign up to uh, volunteer or commit themselves to support, and I'll get into that a bit later, to support somebody over the course of 12 months, Um, who is fleeing, you know, generally speaking, these are torture. Um, The Rainbow Railroad, which I mentioned earlier, they're they're doing a study into the the massive camp in uh, Uganda where, you know, a lot of refugees are. Um, These people are fleeing unthinkable things uh, in the countries they're from. And these 12 12 Joe Schmoes, just people on the street, just 12 average everyday Canadians can come together, create a group, and help that person acclimatize, adapt, and, and, and then hopefully thrive in Canada. When we interviewed Capital Refuge, uh, they said, you know, you need to get frying pans. You need to get, you know, uh, guides on how to get a job in, in the town you're in. You need bedding. It's, it is it is literally, you know, it's the whole gamut of, of what's needed to support, including financial support so that folks can can live and, and rent, um, over that first year, I was actually pretty shocked that this was taking place in Vancouver, one of the most expensive cities in the whole darn world. Like, I'm sure that was actually quite a barrier for this, these twelve, uh, those ten that uh, initially signed up for the circle. Yeah, I, you
3: know, I, I think in our minds as well, like we were we were thinking about somebody coming into Vancouver, somebody coming into Toronto, and it's so expensive. Like, it, it is ridiculously expensive. Um, I think what we found, uh, especially with Drake, who is the newcomer that came into this circle was uh, he's just he's crafty. He was able to, to find accommodation that was pretty cheap. Like he was renting a room in a house for five hundred dollars uh, a month. So he was able to he was able to figure it out and make it work on his budget, which I appreciated. And also, like, opened up my eyes to how somebody can begin to make it in the city um, and begin to, like, step up from there.
0: What, what really surprised me about the documentary Someone Like Me was a part of me was expecting this to be almost like a deep dive on Drake, you know, the, the moment that Drake lands to, the, you know, the, the whole journey. But it, it, it what surprised me is that it wasn't a sort of, uh, you know, an expedition on on those 12 months, but rather looking at the whole story from the whole group that came together together. Um, to support him in doing this. What was your your sort of uh, reasoning behind creating that narrative?
2: I I mean, you've touched on, I'm glad that you took this away from the film. You've touched on a lot of things that we started this project with. I mean, you see these 12 individuals um, from Vancouver, they're across the LGBTQ spectrum. They are all young from completely different walks of life thrown together. They were complete strangers at the start of the project and didn't know each other. It's one of those rare special things for a filmmaker where we would never, ever have a group of 12 people like this for any other project in this cross section of the queer community. And for us, it was so important because these people are your friends, they're your colleagues, they're your family, they're the people that you pass by in your community, you see them at parks on Sundays. Like these are just normal people from our community, from your community who have come together to do this one thing and help, in in this film's case, a young gay man, a fun loving gay man from Uganda escape violence and persecution it's, as a starting point for us. I mean, this was always about making a portrait about the queer community and Drake's story as an asylum seeker and newcomer is one part of this whole fabric of Canada and this layered portrait of what it means to be queer right now in this country.
1: It's actually, there's an interesting angle that I, I'm very curious about. So I know that um, Canada in general and the NFB in specific have a long and rich history of making documentaries. I've actually, uh, when I lived in Japan, I went to the Yamaguchi Film Festival. It was a documentary film festival. And there's two entries from Canada. Like, the NFB is just, like, world-known. I- I'm curious about the support that you got from other filmmakers or from the infrastructure, um, any kind of guidance. Because I know that uh, a lot of the NFB documentaries tend to have a certain tone of them. That they 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 tend to do documentaries that are more like case studies. Like, this is one instance and what can we learn about the situation in general from this one instance? They, they tend to take that angle. Did you land on that on your own or were you supported from
2: the outside? There's a couple of things. I mean, well, the good thing about the NFB is they gave us a lot of research time that you might not get uh, doing this project elsewhere. We had two years where we were uh, deeply embedded in our community. I think we were counting the other day and over a hundred queer people or people from a, the newcomer community added their voices to this and showed us like we followed five different sponsorship groups as they formed and and at different stages so we knew what to expect over the year all of these people contributed to this film before there was even a camera involved so this has always been a community project for us from the very beginning and the nfb you know what it's like as a director for it depends what you bring to it They they do have a definite style of the film um and steve and i definitely have a like style as well. Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> We're like six years into our filmmaking career. We've done 20 projects, a lot of short films together. We have our own directing style and history. And it was interesting to work with the NFB because we pushed them, they pushed us, and we got to a middle place. Like this film, it is a serious issue film, but it's the queer community. It is 12 very huge characters with huge personalities. Uh, there's a lot of humor, which you wouldn't like. You read the film's summary, and you're like, Well, this is I'm not expecting to laugh, but there's points in the film where you, you know, there's a drag queen, there is a, like a med student, there's another grad student, there's an immigration lawyer, there's a gay entrepreneur, there's it's a former Catholic nun, all of them have this bring mm-hmm. this energy and so many different lives all come and together. we seek
3: those types of personalities out with our just like as characters that we try to find in our films
2: and for us i mean it was super important too If whenever we do a serious issue film you need to have that emotional counterpoint for us i mean if you're going to watch something for 90 minutes it can't be for us at least it can't just be 90 minutes of a one emotional note so we hope that when people watch this that they they see that in this film and you get those moments where, you know, these are real people with real lives who some of them deal with trauma, with humor. And it's- Yeah. yeah.
3: We, was, we kind of say this is a Sean and Steve, well, a Sean and Steve NFB movie, right? Like <laughs> we bring our influence to it for sure.
0: One of the things that jumped out at me, and I think it's sort of what was a consistent theme. And I kind of wondered if you went in aiming for this or if it was something that sort of organically emerged, which was, when you're looking at Drake, who was the the asylum seeker who came in, um, and how it was then paralleled, some of his experiences were paralleled in the lives of the 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 others who were sponsoring him or supporting him rather in the circle. You know, I think um, addressing racism in Canada was something that emerged as one of those sort of unexpected common threads. You know, were you expecting to see parallels across other? The other participants or was it something that almost you know like i said organically emerged out of uh, the experience
3: i think just how we approached the film and how we had to take it like one week at a time and we had to constantly go back and check in with subjects to to see what was progressing in their lives um and then when drake finally entered the pitch where we were also talking to him frequently and we were just trying to look for the, the similar story kind of paths that each character was taking and like so for example when David's talking about trying to uh, find a job um, you, you begin to see that and then you begin to think about Drake who's also needs to start thinking about what he's going to do in his future in Canada um, so I think it was just like a, a natural progression we, we never quite sure what was going to happen some things we were like the racism thing with marlon we were we were wondering um and we we asked marlon on the first interview what challenges he thought drake would face as a, a newcomer to canada and like instantly he was like racism um and so that pretty much like that that set the tone for what we were maybe expecting we weren't sure and then sure enough five months later it, drake experiences racism
2: we we're like wow like you know it, it is pretty eye-opening i think there's also something like an overarching Thing that we discovered through this film is just the truth about queerness. I mean, it is the queer identity it is about longing and belonging and wanting to find community. And we all grow up trying to, like at least we certainly did, wondering where are the other queer people? Where is my community? How am I going to find them? I want to be part of this. I want to know people. I want to know someone like me, which is the film's title, right? This this is layered throughout the film. And you see these all of these people uh, on screen are all s- searching for a version of this connection, community,
0: freedom. Mm. One of the things that I think caused um, tension, I, I think, you know, we didn't see it too much, but it was definitely a sense of it there, is that uh, the group of folks who came together to support Drake, uh, Drake sorry, sort of uh, fell apart almost. That Not all of them were, were there at the start of the movie, at the, you know, didn't all make it to the end of the movie, even though each of them have made it all possible. But I'm kind of wondering, one of the themes that seemed to emerge is the difference between support and saving and sort of, uh, you know, did you have to address sort of white savior complex and, and, and really defining the role? Because I think that's a big part of what I took away from this this documentary is, you know, it got me thinking like, wow, we have a spare room. Maybe this is something we should think about. and I, I encourage all Canadians to, to think about how they can support uh, folks fleeing these, these unthinkable uh, situations. But I was kind of curious as to your take as to that that dividing line between uh, support and saving and, and how that impacted the group. It's
2: funny. I mean, you see one of the first scenes of the film or when all of the uh, sponsors, Drake sponsors all come together for their first meeting with the folks from Rainbow Refugee. And you hear Chris, the founder of Rainbow Refugee, detail what you just spoke about very clearly that this is about supporting someone and not saving them. And even for us, and maybe for some of your listeners, I mean, you hear that and you're like, well, what does that mean? Or like, okay, yeah, I know how to support somebody. You Like, I would just say you really don't until (laughs) you go through this process and you don't know what that difference means. I mean, the people who are coming over this, and this was, I should say for everyone too, this was a huge, huge conflict in this film. And it is, uh, you know, this is a twisty turny surprise film in, in several por- portions that shocked us. Like we had spent all this time researching and then this happened and it was like, we spun out of, I wouldn't say out of control, but we had a very difficult month telling <laughs> we were out of control. <laughs> and its it's this idea is like, you know, the people who are coming Uh, asylum seekers immigrants refugees they're adults so you you might think that you know what's best for them even if you feel that way it's really like that shouldn't ever come into play in this they're adults they have their own agency your responsibility uh, and what we learned through this is to show up for them without judgment every day and you know if they're going to make a decision that you don't agree with you still need to support them and they will go through that decision process and you, you will be there to provide them with resources and support, that's, that's your role. Mm-hmm. And it's like, these are skills that if you do this work you will take it into other areas in your life. If you have a, a family member with a chronic illness or someone struggling with addiction, these are all the skills that you take from this will carry out through the rest of your life.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned the, that as being the, the twisty turny part of the film. And not the global earth-shattering pandemic, which uh, I, I think was, uh, you know, a curveball that nobody was expecting. Because, um, of course, you were filming, you started in, in 2019. I mean, obviously, you mentioned your research was, was much earlier than that. Um, but, of course, Drake arrives in 2020, you know, and then lo and behold, uh, the world ends. So how on earth did you manage to create a documentary when, you know, the, the tail end of it is all in lockdown?
3: It was hard. Uh like, <laughs> March 2020 we just completely felt like we had really found like the wind beneath our wings. We were like the, the movie was really coming together, all of our subjects were like everything was just in place and we felt like we were in a really good space and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and we were like oh, what do we do? Um you're not allowed out with cameras and it be shut down production across Canada, everybody was in their apartments, and we were like, We still need to do this. We've gotten this far. Um, we're still within this really unique situation, um, and we just wanted to continue filming. So, for us, we were like, What if we bought an iPhone and what if we sanitized it, dropped it off on like our subject's door steps, and left a list of questions with different scenes that they might be able to film? We'd leave the phone with them for a week and then we would cart that out and it was really fun i mean we would offload the footage and it was always like a treasure box where we didn't know what was going to be on it and we would see how people were portraying their own lives and how they like to be seen and it was just it was really it was super intimate footage that came back and we were really happy um that that's the type of footage that we were getting back for this pandemic experience because we need to keep on going <laughs> And it kept us busy. I mean, you know, you remember those early days of the pandemic.
2: You'd be like, I got to do this.
0: I mean, having watched it, I think, like you said, that the intimacy that it provided helped to create uh it, it sort of really brought you into the, the production at the end. Um, and it was definitely a powerful one. I like I said before, I think this is required viewing for anybody who, who is thinking about uh um you know supporting somebody coming into the country but also I think for queer folks like this is a big part of the Canadian queer experience is, is supporting refugees um you know and and it's something that comes up in communities all over the country that we we actually we have a as part of this show we have an interview with uh Minister Chaga the Minister for Diversity and Youth and uh, we're talking about the budget and you know we mentioned that they've given hundreds of thousands to organizations like Rainbow Railroad, um, specifically to support Canadians who are doing this work. So it's incredibly important to folks all over the country. You don't even have to be gay to, <laughs> to sign up and support somebody. Um, everyone is, uh, is available. Now, uh, my understanding is that you folks were on the Hot Docs Festival uh, lineup in Toronto. Uh, by the time folks are hearing it, they've just just missed it, uh, but they also might catch you at the DOXA Documentary Film Festival in Vancouver, the DOXA uh, Documentary uh, Film Festival, which runs May 6th to 16th, um, and then the Northwest uh, Northwest Fest Edmonton, it's a bit of a tongue twister, uh, 6th to 16th in, uh, across Alberta. I mean, this is incredible. I think that you've got a bit of a gem on your hands here, and I think anyone who sees it we we'll want to share it with our communities. Folks can reach out to the National Film Board of Canada to to request a private screening or, or to get it shown in their communities as well. Um, but yeah, are you, are you glad with the, the reception that it seems to be getting uh, off the bat?
2: Oh my God, it's been huge. Yeah, we, yeah, we weren't expecting those. Cannot believe uh, with hot dogs and uh, leading into Doxa Northwest Fest, just the amount of, um, attention that we've got across this country and the response has been like we never anticipated this yeah it is it, like to see canadians respond to the story of which you'd be surprised how many people both queer and straight have done this across the country in your community your friends your neighbors your colleagues like mm-hmm. you you ask around and there will be someone close to you who has done this i mean you had a really key story it was your dad's friend who had a, a queer nephew
3: Mm -hmm. and she watched the movie and then she sent the movie to her nephew to have him and his partner watch the movie and they loved it. So it was just interesting to watch how how people were sharing it and who they were sharing it with and how it kind of made its way around uh,
2: the festival. It's been a really good time. We should say too, for your listeners, uh, DOCSA, so the uh, festival in British Columbia in Vancouver, they have opened their screenings uh, because it's streaming this year. It's nationwide. So this is like a really special thing about the pandemic is all these film festivals a lot of them have opened it up, so everyone across Canada, no matter like what city or town that you live in, how big, how small, you can log on to the internet, uh, buy a ticket through the website, and watch it. So, get your well,
0: ticket. I, I <laughs> strongly suggest everyone do so. Like I said, it was it, it was incredible, and I think it also speaks to your talents, the, the two of you as well, because you know you very much got the sense that uh, day one, these t- ten people show up for a meeting and you're there with a the camera. And, and I'm not sure if you knew where this was gonna go or if those 10 folks in the room knew where this was gonna go or if Drake even knew what was gonna happen. So yeah, it's it's a really testament to your, your skill as storytellers to have created such an incredible narrative that pulls you in and connects you to everybody that was on the screen. So uh, I wanna congratulate you that on, uh, on some great uh, great production.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Alright, well as I mentioned earlier we will be jumping to a quick interview with the Minister about the Federal Budget. Uh, I want to thank Sean and Steve much for joining and for sharing this documentary with us so we were able to get a, a sneak peek ahead of time. Um, and I strongly suggest that folks check out the Doxa Film Festival, D-O-X-A um, and uh, get a ticket to see someone like me. Welcome. Welcome back to Canquea home of Canada's Queer Media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And I am very excited to be joined by the for the second time. Thank you so much for for agreeing twice to, to chat with us. Uh, to with the incredible Minister of Diversity, Inclusion and Youth, the Honourable Barnish Chaka. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, one of the things I like about chatting with you, Minister Chaka, is it always seems to be about very good news. Uh, you know, we talked about the uh, Enabling Future of Community-Legged Organizations Fund and, and all of those amazing projects. Um, and now we're talking about even more incredible funding for the LGBT community from coast to coast to coast.
4: And that's exactly it. This work has been happening for a long time. The difference, I would say, is today we have a government under the leadership of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that acknowledges the importance of ensuring that we're acting on it. Um, So for our government, LGBTQ2 rights are human rights, full stop. That's not the debate we're having anymore. What we are working on is building an even better and a consciously more inclusive Canada so we don't continue leaving people on the sidelines. And I think that's what's exciting about this budget. It's about people, it's about Canadians, and I'm really hoping that all Canadians and all intersectionalities are seeing themselves reflected in this work.
0: Excellent. Now we had a, we had a statement from Wage Women and Gender Equality Canada because uh, we looked at the budget and we we're very excited to see fifteen million going to the LGBT Projects Fund, and then I think it was seven point one or eight point one going to the LGBTQ Secretariat. Um, so yeah, the, the, you know that's just the, the two sort of what I think would be the big headline pieces. Um, the, if you do a control find for LGBTQ in the budget, we're all over the place. You know, there seems to be a whole picture approach um, to the community, which is great. You know, when I think about where we were five years ago or so, when the LGBT Secretariat was first being formed, I think the MP Randy Buesenal was uh, an integral part of that. Um, there's been a lot of work that's kind of come through there. There's the official apology that came out, um, the, you know, the the memorial for uh, folks who were affected by the anti-LGBT purge within the uh, armed services and uh, the Department of Defence. I mean, this secretariat seems to be doing a lot of work, but I'm kind of curious, with, with you know, seven odd million, that's a lot of money, and I'm just wondering... Where is that work going forward? What are these what are these Ottawa bureaucrats going to be doing? So I'm just going to go, go on
4: two themes that you've shared. First of all, 7.1 million dollars um, for the Secretariat to continue their crucial work over the next three years um, to not only, make sure that we're developing inclusive policies, but also in the development of the LGBTQ2 Action Plan, uh, the first of its kind. So the Secretariat itself works with LGBTQ2 stakeholders across the country. And these activities help inform the government on issues and potential solutions that are important to LGBTQ2 Canadians. And so the Secretariat is working with public servants in all departments and agencies to help them apply an inclusive approach that considers the potential impacts of policies, programs, and laws on Canadians of all sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And then the LGBTQ2 Secretariat, even though it's not a department, it does work with organizations um, and stakeholders to ensure that they know what funding is available. So that is what's instrumental because there's this disconnect between people on the ground and the work that government does. And so the secretariat is actually the bridge who's directly connected to community, directly connected to government to help build and restore some of those relationships, because we don't know what we don't know. But do you know who does know? LGBTQ2 Canadians. And that's where it was really exciting in the development of the action plan. The whole concept of nothing about us without us is front and center. And so we put out the national survey, which we spoke about last time. It closed on February 28th, 2021. And We had 23,000 respondents, which is way more than anticipated. So thank you for helping get the word out. Thank you to all who have participated. And for those who may not have had an opportunity because, you know, there's a lot going on and the pandemic has impacted all disproportionately certain segments and definitely exposed the inequalities, there is still time to contribute because... The deadline of May 31st is so that um, organizations and individuals can provide online submissions through the Secretariat website uh, and page. And then the Secretariat is also out doing virtual roundtables um, until the end of June 2021, so that we actually can then table in the spring a What We Heard report that will bring together all of the information from these engagement sessions and conversations and contributions. So they do a lot of work. Um, they are actually making sure that we're threading this inclusive approach, especially when it comes to the focus of LGBTQ two communities in the work in all federal departments and agencies.
0: Yep, and I think, as you mentioned, this is across three years, so it's you know these things, they all you know the dollar gets stretched uh, as much as it possibly can. Um, you know, one of the things that jumps out at me is. The LGBT community in Canada hasn't really had a, you know, this is who we are, this is where we're heading, collective moment. Um, so I'm I'm personally quite excited to see what the report in the spring indicates. Me you too. Know, <laughs> yes. I wonder if it, it's not, it would not only just be, you know, a moment for, you know, the, the governing, the government to kind of look at where it goes forward, but maybe a moment for the the whole of, Uh, Canada to to sit and think, you know, I just wonder, you know, what are you, what are you hoping to get out of the the action plan?
4: I'm actually looking forward to, um, I'm actually looking forward to the direction that is coming from the diversity of perspectives from the LGBTQ2 communities as to what concrete steps and actions the federal government can take to actually respond to the diverse needs of lgbtq communities. Um, in Canada, as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau often says, diversity is our strength, but that diversity is more than the shells we occupy. That diversity comes in many different ways that we see and cannot see. And that's where it's important that we have these conversations and discussions, and oftentimes they may be uncomfortable, but they're essential as to the way we move forward. And I think that's why it is really important to our government to ensure that it is an evergreen and living document, because the realities of today um, may change and we have to be able to still be agile and be able to respond to that reality. And I think that's where the Capacity Fund was really good news because it provided something that communities have been asking for for a really long time. This secretariat, even though it feels like five years ago, wasn't. It? it was only in 2017. And it was in response, you know, we had the LGBTQ2 flag flown for the first time in 2016. Um, and that's been a long time coming. Randy Boissonneau, a force as the parliamentary assistant advisor to the prime minister on LGBTQ2 issues, really fought hard to ensure that we had a full voice at the cabinet table. And today I'm really you know, honored and privileged to be that voice. And so I continue pushing to ensure that we are actually being informed by communities. And I think that's where this LGBTQ2 action plan for me is really important because if you look at the survey, 16 years of age and older, self-identifying as part of the communities, entirely voluntary, entirely anonymous, respecting the needs. Um, and I think that's where it really comes down to, you know, how do we actually l- listen and actually hear the, the lived experiences and realities of individuals and then have a government that's actually responding to what they're asking for rather than what the government might think is best.
0: I know that I filled out the survey. I'm mean, I just, I mean, I, I am a big fan of filling out surveys. I actually did my census a couple of days Yay! ago. Everyone, everyone go, go and fill out your census. Um, <laughs> just sidebar promo for Stats Canada. Who knew? Um, one of the things that Seb mentioned, and I'll, I'll throw it to you Seb, one of the concerns was around folks who maybe aren't in urban areas. The gay community tends to centralize in urban communities. Um, and but I things things think you had a question about that
1: yeah so the, the it's kind of a an adjunct to the squeaky wheel question you know we know that the largest urban centers, especially Montreal, Vancouver and Toronto have a very high population but we also know like the the this survey that was done recently is kind of a reflection of a sort of a, a kind of a survey kind of a census that they did in the United States about 15 years ago where they discovered quite to everyone's surprise that it was something, really alarming, like 40% of LGBT identified people in the United States live in rural settings. Um, Many of them are hard to find, many of them are hard to serve and many of them are hard to study by design. They don't wanna be found. They they like living small, quiet lives in the countryside which can be understandable depending on the context that you're living in. So as much as like, I'm very like unequivocally I am 100% for this entire project but one of my smaller concerns is that um, the people who tend to speak up the most tend to be more organized. And you're not going to get like, uh, you know, like the, there's a small French Canadian population in Nunavut. and There's a small Inuit population in Northern Quebec. Do they have representation if, they are, if they're identifying? Because maybe they don't have enough people. Like all five of them in Iqaluit don't really have a reason to like, you know, form an organization and request money. But they're, they're there and they need service and maybe they have special health concerns or something like that. So how how is this program looking to serve Canadians who are underserved even by their own community?
4: Sebastian, I really appreciate that conversation. I just want to step back to Luke first of all. The the census public service announcement you just made actually informs government as to where the gaps are, as to where programs and services are needed. Our government actually brought back the long-form census for that very reason, and you'll notice the nuances and the, the disaggregated data that we're going to be able to get out of the census because we've improved the questions based on the information that for far too long we haven't been asking. So we're actually asking these questions so that we can better serve all of Canada's diversity. Sebastian, to your point, I know, and I really appreciate you saying like a a small point for yourself is a major issue for myself. I'm actually constantly looking at who is at the decision-making table and who's not at the decision-making table. And when somebody's not at the decision-making table, I'm asking why they're not at the decision-making table. Is it, you know... relationship we need to build is it because we're not searching hard enough to go and you know really locate and get to understand these communities so the way the action plan is being informed is first of all there was the survey and that was for individuals wherever they were and they were able to actually share a little bit about themselves and their situation including where they are living and then we've got these organizations oftentimes more organized but are servicing a lot of these individuals in rural remote North communities? Because they, you're right, don't necessarily have the services in their backyard. So where are they coming to to obtain those services? And these organizations and the larger urban centers have been sharing that with us. Sure, we're located here, but this is who we serve. And that's where, you know, it's really been essential to ensure that we create as many opportunities. I'm also very mindful of the fact that some people aren't connected to the internet. And that's where Minister Monsef and our government is committed to ensuring that all Canadians are connected and that the only way to participate was not online and that you are able to, you know, uh, contribute in other um, not online ways. And I think, you know, something that was really clear is if you look at the community capacity fund, um, we saw communities like Waterloo, which is a small town turned city, receive community capacity fund support for the first time and oftentimes they say we didn't even know we were noticed but they are noticed and if you look at the stakeholders and organizations I've been meeting with we've actually been traveling coast to coast to coast and that's why I'll say anytime you provide me an opportunity to have a conversation here Luke and Sebastian I will be here and that's not because the first time or the second time I look forward to the fourth and fifth and go on, because that's part of my responsibility, is to continue engaging with communities to say, we want to hear from you. We need to know what we don't know. We need to know where those services need to be. And we also want to work at different levels of government, because we need to create some of those opportunities because we are a confederation. So it's very front and center for myself. And if you look at just the response to COVID-19, when we established the Equity Seekings Communities Task Force to respond to COVID-19, we were really conscious about the fact that there are individuals who have been left behind for far too long, and that was no longer going to be the approach of the government of the day. And that's where my portfolio is really an essential one, it's one to work with all ministers. It's not about virtue signaling. It's actually about making sure that every Canadian can be their true authentic self, that every Canadian can contribute their potential and realize their potential. And I think that's where this work is building upon the work that we've done. And we really want this action plan to be created by community for the government of Canada to respond to communities.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for for taking the time. I did. I did want to know. I was actually quite disappointed that I didn't get the long form census. <gasps> I, I know. I was. Yeah. I know my partner couldn't <laughs> understand why I was upset by that, but it was <laughs> luck of the draw, I suppose. Um, and the other thing that jumped out at me earlier on in what you were saying is about looking about who's in the conversation, and then studying to see who's outside of that. And when I was doing my undergraduate, carton that you know, that's the queer lens. That's the academic queer lens to you know analyze the situation. So I just find it incredible that we're applying the queer lens to see who's engaged uh, in LGBT uh, outreach. I mean, I just want to can I jump on to that because no. I appreciate your recognition. Because if you actually look
4: at the open, transparent, merit-based appointment process. We're asking people to self-identify if they choose to. And if you look at appointments to the bench, if you look at these governor and council appointments on various boards um, through the federal government, we're seeing a lot more representation. And what's also been interesting is that somebody might apply and not self-identify, but then recognizing the importance of actually bringing that voice to the forefront and taking the privilege they have of being in that opportunity and in that role to actually recognize the importance of advancing that work right if you look at premier win premier win was the first premier, openly gay premier in Canada. And though that was not her number one issue, it was an issue because she lived it and she took on that opportunity to make sure that we were actually including these populations in the decisions we were making. We obviously have a lot more work to do and that's where I would encourage people to continue participating um, so that we can actually make sure those lenses are being applied in a meaningful way. Um, and, and, you know, in academia, we can find people from communities that are able to provide that input. And we need to dig harder and deeper to make sure that we're bringing them to the forefront
0: as well. We, we're broadcast all over the country in, in ridings of, of every political stripe. But what I think that this Liberal government has done is it has raised the bar Uh, of what is now expected for engagement and, and, you know, treating folks and engaging with folks. Um, And I I sincerely hope that all political parties will will meet that bar that has been set um, as we move forward. So I'm uh, I'm excited to see where this continues to move. I'm very excited to see what's in this action plan. We will get a magnifying glass and, and, and scour every page Um, And to speak to those five people in Iqaluit that uh, Sebastian mentioned earlier, don't forget to reach out to LGBT organizations who serve your area. The deadline isn't quite over for organizations to give feedback on the Action Plan and the LGBTQ Secretariat is having virtual roundtables. So there's still ways to be heard in your communities. Thank you again so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure. And we'll be back just after this. Hello and welcome back to Can home of Canada's Queer Media. Earlier we heard Love to the World by Rosita Stone, uh, followed by our interview with Minister Chagat.
5: Mm.
0: Now, one of the things that we didn't get to mention during the interview, which Minister Chag was excited to mention afterwards, and I think you also prompted the question, yeah.
1: I had two questions and I remember one of them during the interview. And then afterwards we, had, we both ended up bringing up the fact of the health funding about uh, health and mental health funding and whether or not there'd be anything for that, because that is a major concern. Various things like a uh, uh, trans health is very, has very specific needs to it. There's a lot of research that needs to be done because from a historical point of view, it's a very new thing, especially within the medical field. And there's a lot we don't really know. But even beyond that, there's things like addiction recovery and, and there's different rates of like, for some reason, cancer affects the queer community slightly differently. So there, there's different things that need to be looked into. And yeah, the idea, the, the answer, and we're going to have to go into this in a future episode because it's very involved. There is money set aside for that, but it's going to be done through uh, health networks and not through this funding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you're, you're spot on. You know, we talked about the package to the Secretariat. We talked about the package to the Women in Gender Equality Canada, the, the wage group. Um, you know, and but what I mentioned at the start is, you know, if you do a control find on the budget, we're mentioned all over the place. Yeah. Well, this is what makes me think of why the work of the LGBTQ Secretariat is so important. Yes. You know, they're going to be in conversations with every department in the mm-hmm. Canadian government. So that the LGBT folks in across Canada are a part of these conversations, you know, in, in every department. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a good thing to see. You know, and at the I mean, end of the day, if we're working for, you know, the most vulnerable and the most at risk and the most isolated Canadians, right. that could only help all Canadians.
1: It was actually really interesting. She mentioned the importance of a reliable internet connection because even in the major cities the community is very dispersed and we rely on the internet and there's parts of Canada where that's still not reliable. And all I could think of was uh, my one Matt, who lives in like in Western Quebec, her internet connections through a satellite dish mm. and she's surrounded by tall nickel bearing Hills. So she, her satellite dish can only point in one direction. And if there's even the most remote chance of, of rain, then she basically loses the internet. So there are parts of Canada where that's still true, even in moderately populated areas. A lot of them sort of, you know, on the East Coast or in Northern Quebec, there's sort of more remote areas that still don't have reliable connections. So they do everything through dishes. And it's, it's really peculiar, but like that is a health concern. That's a community concern. It's a mental health concern. You know, getting infrastructure, getting reliable roads and sidewalks, getting reliable internet connections, this actually can make as big an impact on your daily life as investing directly into health and mental health
0: well we'll be keeping an eye on these stories as they develop there were other stories this week that we didn't get to and uh, we'll hopefully double back to them next week we're playing out with marion stokes hands on my body my name is luke smith and my name is sebastian thank you for listening.
6: Hands on my body, baby, show me that you want me Show me that you want me, baby, hands on my body